Have you ever thought about how our world is being shaped? Where are we headed and what might we leave behind? You're listening to Nextcasts, presented by Swissnext San Francisco, where we examine the forces shaping our emergent future through conversations with scientists, entrepreneurs, artists and designers. choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. 50 years ago, President John F. Kennedy made a promise to the world to take on one of the biggest challenges of the time and boldly go where no one had gone before. Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. On July 16, 1969, Apollo 11 launched from NASA's Kennedy Space Center. Their destination? The moon. Just four days later, they landed, and this marked the beginning of the space age. I'm going to step off the limb now. That's one small step for man. To mark this 50th anniversary of the moon landing, Swissnex, in partnership with the Embassy of Switzerland in the USA and the Exploratorium, San Francisco's Science Museum, presented an evening of panel discussions with astronauts, scientists and researchers to discuss the past, present and future of space exploration. Before they went on stage, I interviewed four of the panellists, including Switzerland's first astronaut, Claude Nicolier, Muriel Richard Noka from Clean Space One mission, and Jill Tata from SETI Research, and finally, Eugene Tu, the Centre Director of NASA Ames Research Centre. Here they are at Swissnex at Pier 17. Hi Claude, we're really excited to have Switzerland's first astronaut here tonight. Can you tell us, was it always your dream to become an astronaut? Well, um, I had a dream to become a pilot when I was a kid and uh, I had a lot of interest in science and in uh, astronomy in particular. And uh, I was fortunate that in Switzerland you could uh, become a scientist, but at the same time you can be a pilot in the Air Force, which I did. So in parallel I could uh, satisfy my dreams of being a scientist, especially an astronomer uh, and an Air Force pilot part-time. So these are the two interests that uh, I stayed with me during my whole life, still now. Fantastic. And uh, of course uh, in the... Uh, in the 60s, when the Apollo program took place, I was 25 years of age. Uh, I was an astronomer, I was a fighter pilot, and I dreamed to be an astronaut. There was a huge motivation for me, but, you know, there was no room for, uh, for Europeans, uh, for Swiss. Uh, it was something between the Soviet Union and the, and, and the United States. It's only a few years later, in the mid-70s, that ESA, the European Space Agency, was invited to participate in the shuttle program. Then immediately I thought, wow, this is something that I can do, and then I followed that track, and it worked. So now you're talking a little bit about Switzerland. Um, what is Switzerland's place in the future of space research, and is Switzerland a space na nation? Well, Switzerland is definitely a space nation. It's a small space nation, but it's a space nation. Uh, it's one of uh, 22 member states of the European Space Agency. 
again, a, a small a small country compared to the, the large countries like France and Italy and uh, Germany, uh, the UK. Uh, it's about 3.5% of uh, the European space agency in terms of the sharing of the costs, but it gets also the same amount of uh, industrial contracts. And um, there are very valuable industrial contracts because of the uh, legacy in uh, watchmaking and uh, precision instrument making. and. Uh, uh, it has a good reputation within ESA. We get a lot of interesting contracts. For instance, uh, the atomic clock of the European GPS, which is called Galileo, are made in uh, Neuchâtel. And there are other contributions to the space program, whether it's manned or unmanned. So Switzerland is definitely a space nation. It's a small space nation, but it is a space nation. How would you describe the last 50 years in, in space research? What did we achieve? Well, of course, uh, I would say that the Apollo program was a huge springboard for the space program in general, especially for the, for the human space program. As you know, the shuttle program followed the Apollo program uh, with the first flight in uh, 1981, and uh, the shuttle was used for 30 years. So in a way, the space program, especially the human space program, happened in waves. So we had the Apollo wave, which was absolutely superb wave, uh, we had the shuttle wave, then we had the International Space Station, which is, of course, related to the shuttle because shuttle was instrumental in the assembly of uh, ISS from uh, 1998 until its retirement in 2011. Uh, so we have accomplished quite a lot uh, beyond Apollo, which was, of course, an absolutely superb, magnificent, and a very inspiring program. Uh, we have done a lot to use the capabilities and the resources of the low Earth orbit. It's time to go away now and uh, move again to faraway destination, uh, Moon, Mars, and, uh, and other places. But in a way, there has been a lot of preparation steps in order to accomplish these next step of exploration. Um, also, I think uh, one important uh, element is the, the, the rise of the private companies, uh, whether it's uh, SpaceX, Blue Origin, uh, Virgin Galactic, they are rising. And I wouldn't say that it's a competition to the institutional agencies like NASA and the other space agencies, but there will be a cooperation between the two for a better space program in the future. There are new ideas coming from uh, these uh, private companies, and I think it's a very healthy process. Now that you're talking about the future, what do you expect from the next 50 years? More, Mar more moon, more Mars? Where do you think we're headed? Well, um, again, we'll be going away from the low Earth orbit. We'll continue using the resources of the low Earth orbit, of course, especially for Earth observation and for doing a lot of development that are needed before we take spaceships with faraway destinations, although the moon is not very far, just two and a half days away. The moon is really the, uh, the neighborhood of uh, planet Earth. But when, whenever we go to Mars and other places, we'll need to be ready, and we do a lot of preparation steps uh, using low Earth orbit capabilities like the International Space Station. So going away is something that will happen uh, the next uh, few decades. Uh, we know that the plan is already to go back to the moon uh, before the end of 2024, so this is pretty close. And then the moon to stay, and then uh, going to Mars, which is the most uh, likely destination beyond the moon. And I think there will be a lot of other development that will be really useful and necessary, like taking care of the space debris. We need to do something about it. It's not easy. It's much easier to bring something to orbit than to take something from orbit and bring it back down to Earth. But we need to do that. 
And um, another important thing is really the planetary defense. Uh, be ready to have an intruder, a big asteroid, uh, going toward the, the hurt and possibly hitting it if we don't do a, uh, something about it, like a deviation uh, several years, maybe decades before we see that there is an intruder that is really potentially dangerous for, for planet Earth. We need to go develop the means to go and deviate it. So these are the beyond the low Earth orbit, uh, going away from the low Earth orbit and going to far away destination in the human spaceflight. There will be, of course, planetary science that will continue, like uh, in the spirit of uh, uh, Cassini and uh, uh, Rosetta, which is a super program of the European Space Agency. Knowledge of the solar system will continue. Uh, but these two elements uh, take care of space debris and take care also of the threats of a collision with asteroids. This probably will not happen in the next years or next decade, but maybe in 50 years, 100 years, 200, 500 years. We need to be ready and we need to prepare that. Fantastic. Thank you so much for Thank talking you. to us and taking the time. We're looking forward to the panel. So next up, I spoke with Muriel Richard Noka from Clean Space One Mission. Their mission is to remove space debris and ensure sustainability in space and beyond. She started off by telling us the importance of removing space debris. So it, it's important to clean up space because we have been using space for the last 50 years and accumulating things in, inside space. Um, and it's reached a point where there is enough of the failed satellites and parts of uh, rockets and so on that they will likely collide with each other in the next decades and every collision creates thousands of debris. So it's a cascading effect between two objects that encounter themselves creating thousands of objects and this ca cascading effect would prevent us from using space if it, had, if it was really engaging. So we have to act before it's, it gets there, and, and so we have to act now. Um, there are several endeavors, uh, especially in Europe, about uh, cleaning space, especially by the European Space Agency. So we're not the only one, but uh, we're seeing our prog progress to be quite parallel, in fact. And how much time do you need to remove the debris from space? There are 23,500 debris that are bigger than 10 centimeters. Okay, out of that, uh, NASA has identified about the 500 most wanted. Um, if we really, really wanted to remove all of these, uh, it would take a very long time. Um, typically, from our estimates uh, on our mission, it would take a couple of months, three months, to actually remove one. So three months times 500, you can do this in parallel, but the, the real question is who is going to pay for it? And um, that, it's, that is still an open question. And so really I wouldn't count it in counting, I would not count it in terms of years. I would count it in terms of how do we handle the cost of it. What is the process to remove the debris from space? So the process to remove an object from space, first of all, is a process that has never been done before, okay? So we know how to do the docking of two elements. 
so the International Space Station and the cargo, and, and these are very stable and they talk to each other, and that we know how to do. When you have a, a debris or a space object, um, which is not functioning in space, typically it's, it's actually tumbling, it's spinning. And it's not helping when you try to capture it, it's just not helping. So it's, it's a much more difficult task to do. Um, there are different solutions that have been proposed with robotic arms, net. We have chosen a solution which is more like a Pac-Man solution. And, um, and so the idea is that you launch a servicer or the tow truck of space and that servicer makes a rendezvous with the ob object that you want to uh, grab. You capture it and then you bring it down. And then when you bring it down, you release it such that your object falls into the atmosphere and yourself, you put yourself back into a position for going to fetch the next one. What happens to the debris? And the debris, they fall in the atmosphere, which is what they would do anyway naturally. They would not necessarily do it right away, because since there are very high altitudes, there isn't much uh, drag, so force to slow them down. But after 100 years or 200 years, they would come down anyway by themselves. And they actually, break up in the atmosphere. And, they, and actually, when they come in the atmosphere at a very high velocities, like 28,000 kilometers per hour, they heat up very much and they break up and, and that's it. Interesting, thank you for explaining that. Um, okay, next question. Would you say that Switzerland is one of the pioneer countries working on this issue? Switzerland is one of the, so the European Space Agency started the whole program on this. And at the same time, Switzerland and um, the Polytechnic University in, in Lausanne also started uh, the project, our project. So I would say that from that perspective, I think we're pioneering, yes. Um, and what do you think is Switzerland's place within the future of space research? S Switzerland has um, a very special role to play in the space debris um, um, environment because it is a neutral country. So for the last 50 years, mostly three very big countries have been launching and launching and launching. And that includes Europe, so three, four of them. And um, the question is, how do, you, how do you get these players to actually remove th things? Again, it goes back to who pays for it. Um, in the state we are in, if one country decides to go and remove an object, it's going to be one object, and it pays for it, that country pays for it, and it benefits everybody, right? So from an economic perspective, it's not sustainable. So um, there are ways to go around this, and we're working on those different ways to create an, a, a solution which is economically interesting and feasible and viable. Um, and then to, to go back to your question, um, if you have the capability of removing a debris in space, some people will think that you also have the capability to remove other satellites. You know, and it gets to be a question about the, the dual use of that technology, using it to remove debris or using it to remove other people's assets. And um, we have to be very careful about this. And this is why I think that uh, Switzerland has a role to play, because being neutral, 
um, it can provide a service to one country or the other country without having these problems of diplomatic or these diplomatic questions. Exactly. Next, we chatted to Jill Tata from SETI Institute, which stands for the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Okay, Jill, thank you so much for, for talking with us. Oh, you're very welcome. Could you start by um, explaining what SETI is currently working on? So, uh, SETI is an acronym, stands for the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, but actually, that's a misnomer because we don't know how to find intelligence directly, right? at a distance. So what we do is we look for techno-signatures. We look for evidence of someone else's technology that's modifying the environment in ways that we could sense over the vast distances between the stars. And if we find the technology, we're going to infer that at least at some time, there were intelligent technologists who created it. Is there still hope that extraterrestrial intelligence exists? I think today there's even more reason than ever before to be asking this question about extraterrestrial intelligence. Because over the past few decades, we've discovered extremophiles, types of life that we never knew about that exist in, in conditions that were totally inhospitable for humans, but for which they're very well suited. And then we've also discovered all of these exoplanets, planets orbiting other stars thousands of them. So it looks like there's a potentially a lot of habitable real estate out there. And so now we need to find out if any of it is inhabited. In your opinion, what is our purpose on Earth and in the universe? I think our purpose is to be curious, right? I think our purpose is to try and learn about the universe and everything that we can. And then I think our other purpose is to be good stewards for the planet and for all life on it. We're not doing a real good job on that ladder right now, um, but I think we do need to get much better at it so that we can have a long future. Okay, now back to SETI. Can you tell us what type of skills do you need to work at an institution like SETI? We're always eager to have young people come into this general field of astrobiology so looking for biosignatures, evidence of life of any kind, and then looking for technosignatures, so looking for the mathematicians rather than the microbes. And it's, a, it's an expansive field, and I think it's just going to be incredibly, have huge payoffs in this century. So any young people out there thinking about what they want to spend their life doing, I would suggest that astrobiology might be a really enjoyable way to have a career in this century. That's, that's really great advice um, and it's really interesting because there is a lot of conversation around um, Mars and will Mars be that, that next planet that we, that we inhabit if we leave Earth? Do you have any comments about that? On Mars? I think we will have humans on Mars, but I think they're going to be scientists who are studying the planet. I think it's overwhelmingly going to prove easier to fix this planet rather than abandon it for another in, in, on mass. So I think we will definitely have humans on Mars, but I think they will be there to learn about Mars.
as opposed to um, a second outpost for humanity. I think we can do that with colonies in orbit around the planet Earth. And where will the next 50 years of space exploration and research take us? Yeah. Um, back in 2004, Craig Venter and Daniel Cohen published a paper. Uh, they said the 20th century had been the century of physics with things like quantum mechanics and relativity and the cold dark matter universe. And that they predicted that the 21st century would be the century of biology. And of course, they were talking about genomics and proteomics and all of that, and they're certainly being proved right. But I don't think they were bold enough. I think the 21st century is a century of biology on Earth and beyond, right? I think this is a century where we're going to know whether there's any other life in the solar system or around nearby stars. So just to name a few of your career achievements, um, you're the Emeritus Chair for SETI Research, you've served as a project scientist for NASA's SETI program, and you've been named as one of Time 100 most influential people in the world in 2004, and one of Time 25 in space in 2012. You've received a TED Prize in 2009 and two public service awards from NASA. You've been awarded multiple awards for communicating science to the public, and you've been awarded and you've been honored as a woman in technology. Now, when you were a child growing up, did you, did you dream that you'd be in this position today? No, I had my job um, purely by accident because I knew how to program an ancient computer that was given to a scientist who wanted to do a SETI search. Um, it was given as surplus equipment, and he found out that I knew how to program the thing, and so he recruited me. And I thought, wow, you know, after millennia, of asking the priests and the philosophers what we should believe about life beyond Earth. I suddenly was in the right place with the right time. We had the right tools. We had telescopes. We had computers. And I couldn't imagine anything more fascinating than trying to answer this old human question. And what's your advice to young people starting out their careers? When people ask me, when young people ask me what they should do, I, my only advice is to find something that you're passionate about, that you really like doing. And then get better at that than anyone else, and then get creative about how you can use those skills to solve problems that you might never have thought of. Um, if you've got a good toolbox of skills, you'll find lots of problems out there of all kinds of different types that maybe can uh, benefit from your toolbox. So just get good at something you love. Find somebody to pay you to do it. The key point. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for talking. You're very it's welcome. Really interesting. I'm really looking forward to your, your panel. Okay. Thank you. Okay, Dr. Eugene Tu, you're the Centre Director at NASA's Ames Research Centre, and we're here tonight celebrating the 50th anniversary of the landing on the moon. Can you tell us where are we headed in the next 50 years? Well, I think this is going to be a very exciting time for space exploration. And what I usually tell people is think about how aeronautics started. Aviation started 100 years ago. And our center, actually, at NASA Ames has been around for about 80 years. And so we went through that period of time. And initially, it was mostly investments by governments and research that was done for aviation. But aviation really didn't take off until it became a commercial and economic venture. 
And so the government initially invested in aviation, and it also became the first primary customer in the United States. It was the U.S. mail service. Uh, but then eventually, when aviation really took off is when companies became involved in it because you could make money from it, and, and it would be a business. I think that's where we're headed in space. That's why there's so much interest in all the space companies that are forming now, commercial space, uh, access to space, and eventually potentially space tourism or space resources. So I think we're at a period of time in the next 50 years where space exploration could really take off and become sort of part of everyday life uh, in the same way that aviation has today. And why is landing on the moon so desired again? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the moon, we visited the moon 50 years ago, right? and we learned how to get there and get back safely, uh, and we also did some science and research on it. But what we did not know how to do was to stay there in a sustainable way. And so the interest in the moon now is to really learn how to get back to the moon and stay there in a sustainable way with current technologies and eventually learn how to move on to other worlds, uh, for example, Mars. And so part of the interest in the moon is because it is the proving ground. It's only days away rather than months away. And you can bring people back if something fails and you need to, or you can even bring supplies there. Uh, Mars is a much different uh, planet and much difficult, more, more difficult because of its distance. So the moon really is a proving ground there. The second thing about the moon that's very interesting is the science, uh, both science of the moon itself and science from the moon. What I mean by that is, for the moon, it represents a very static geological environment there. And so it teaches us a lot about our Earth, but in a way that it hasn't changed, and so it's preserved much of the geology of the moon. So lunar geology is a very strong interest. And then science from the moon is also interesting. In fact, if you go to the far side of the moon, it's basically shielding from the Earth's magnetic fields and, and radiation and, and, and radio waves. And so from that perspective, the moon is a quiet area where if you look further out into space, you don't have the interference that you have from Earth. That's so interesting. So is there, are there plans to actually set up kind of research labs there to, to be able to expand our understanding of the universe? Yes, so there, there, are, there are spacecraft in development now that would go orbit the moon and potentially take measurements whenever it's on the far side of the moon. Uh, there are ideas to put radio telescopes on the surface of the far side of the moon, for example. Uh, and so, yes, there are, there are uh, many ideas out there of how we could further study the universe from the quiet zone of the far side of the moon. How important are international collaborations, especially with the European Space Agency, and particularly with countries like Switzerland? Yeah. So international collaborations are, are absolutely required now. Uh, because of the goals that we have for space exploration, it really is beyond the resources of any one nation to try to put together, uh, both in terms of just finances, money, and resources, but also the intellectual capital, the know-how. And so I think international collaborations now are incredibly important in how we will do the future exploration. The Artemis program, which is the U.S. program to return to the moon, is going to be doing so in, in a different way than before, than Apollo did. Uh, it's going to be much more heavily uh, working with internationals, and it's also going to be much more heavily working with the commercial sector. Uh, even the landing systems that we are envisioning now would be provided by the commercial sector, as an example. And that commercial sector could be both domestic here in the U.S. or international companies. And finally, what do you love about space and space research? 
Uh, for me personally, it's really about what I love about space research is it's 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 redefining the possibilities, and it's also learning more about our home. Uh, I have kids right now. One of them's in college. One of them about to leave for college. One of them is still in high school, and I'm I find that. You know, you, people don't really learn and expand until they leave home and then they also realize what they've had at home, right? And so, so for society, I think it's that type of situation too, where you, you, once we are able to leave the earth and study other worlds and possibly live on other worlds, we will also better appreciate what we have here on earth and also better understand the earth and how to preserve it. Super fantastic. Thank you so much for okay. talking with us. Really interesting. Thanks. Well, thanks for listening to another episode of Nextcasts. I'm Perrine Huber from Swissnext San Francisco.